All right, if you have a Bible, go on over to Luke chapter 16. We'll also put it up on the big glowing Bible behind me here, the screen. And uh, if you have a Bible on your phone, you can scroll there and uh, get there. Luke chapter 16, and we'll land there in a moment. If you don't have a Bible at home, we say this. Uh, this is really important to us. But we really want everybody to have a copy of the Bible. And so we've got these Bibles around the room in baskets and in the back there. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Bible home with you and just break it in. It's our gift uh, to you. So that's for you. Uh, Luke chapter 16. Uh, while you're turning there, you know, over the years I've told you guys about the many, many jobs that I've had. And I was thinking about it this week, and there's one job that I had that I don't think I've ever told you about, and maybe you find it to be uh, pretty interesting. And that was, I used to work from the ages of 14 all the way through 18 at a drag strip, at a racetrack. It was an eighth of a mile track, and uh, my friend's dad had owned the track for years and years and years, and I loved working there. It was really cool on Friday and Saturday nights until the wee hours of the morning. And I did just about every job that was available to work at the racetrack and just kind of rose the ranks there and uh, started with this most boring job you can imagine. It's called the ET booth. And uh, basically what that is is at the end of the track, there's this little printer and it just prints off a little slip and it gives the racers their time. And so they go to the end of this eighth of a mile, turn around, go to my shack, and I rip them off a piece of paper. And it was terribly boring, the worst thing I've ever done in my entire life because I just bored to to death. Um, There was also... The staging lanes, I did the staging lanes, which is where you, before they go up for racing, you line up all the cars and get them all matched up, and then you send them, whether they're professional or semi-pro or amateur, or even the kids, they make kids rail cars, and I get them lined up and send them out, and that was pretty cool. Another one that I thought was cool, but it ended up being terrible, was the burnouts. Now, what, what I did there is I would stand at the very front of the track, and on either side, the racers would come while the others were at the lights, and they would have to burn out their tires. And so I would spray water on the ground here and spray water on the ground here. And they would burn out their tires to get them really, really warm and sticky so they'd stick to the track. And it sounds cool. You'd be in all this, you know, right in the action, but you're just breathing in rubber smoke. And it was awful. And every now and again, a rock would get shot out at you from a tire as it's spinning and just hits you in the neck and you think you're dead. Uh, it felt like a paintball blow, you know. Uh, I also did the lights, which was a lot of pressure where you press the button and it goes dee, 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 boo, and then they go. And if you mess that up, they're really, you got some really, really mad rednecks and it's not good. Uh, I also inspected cars. So before they could even start racing, they had to be inspected for safety and things like that, which is hilarious because I don't know anything about cars. I can change oil, but that's really about it. But they taught me what I needed to know, and I would inspect cars. Now, what's even more hilarious that I did, uh, it was probably the worst thing I ever did. I've already said that twice now, haven't I? Probably the worst thing I actually ever did, at least on their end, was they asked me to be the announcer one time. Josh, you're like, you know, you've preached a couple times, and you, you know, our, our announcer is sick. You think you can do it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess so. And so I grabbed the microphone, and I'm in this booth up top and overlooking the stands full of, you know, maybe a thousand people. And, and the announcer would always say something cool about each of the cars that were up there. And he would, you know, we got this and we got this. But I didn't know anything. And so I'm up there. It looks like we've got a blue Camaro. And it was a question mark. <laughs> up against the canary yellow 1970-something <laughs> Mustang. And I would just kind of look at the people in the stands and they would go, no. <laughs> Roadrunner. Barracuda, Charger, until finally they were like, (laughs) and I did that, and it was 
awful. I would just go until they were satisfied. <laughs> but the, so the best place you could stick me at the racetrack was the concession stand. And so I did the concession stand a few times as well. I did everything else primarily. But a few times I got to do the concession stand. It was actually really enjoyable. And not to mention there were pretty girls that worked there as well. And so I was in the concession stand from 14 to 18, off and on. But a, a couple different times, they asked me to manage the concession stand. And I thought, this is going to be cool. I'm in charge of the concession stand. It was a huge responsibility for me. I remember, you know, even going through the night and just selling a bunch of junk. And, and at the end of the night, you'd have to kind of cash all the, the, the money and count it all out. And, and had this huge wad of cash. And it was the most cash to date still that I've ever held in my hands at one time. Never been in a rap video or anything. So I just don't have a practice of, you know, holding wads of cash. And I'm, I'm, a couple G's, a couple thousand dollars I'm holding in my hand worth of, you know, nachos and fried chicken to rednecks. And so I'm holding all this, this money and uh, pretty cool. And I just remember thinking, oh, man, I can do a lot of stuff with this money. But here's the thing is the manager at the end of the night I had to go and bring this money to Gene. His name would be Gene, wouldn't it? I had to bring this money to Gene because he owned the the racetrack. And though I was the manager, it was his money. It was all his money, even though I was the manager and I was in, in charge of it. And throughout the teachings of Jesus, he's constantly referring to us as managers or as stewards. Because likewise... Though we have money in our possession, though we have stuff in our possession, in our hands from time to time, it's not ultimately ours. Ultimately, it's His. And we're just called to manage it. But at the end of the day, we're accountable to God for what we do with His money. So men, touch your backside. That wallet, it's His. Ladies, clutch your purse. That money, it's his. And so the opening question to all of us is, how are you using his money? How are you using his money? Now, just to make you comfortable, if you're new here, we don't talk about money every single week, I promise you. I really really promise you. We're spending about a year and a half through the book of Luke, which chronicles the life and the message and the the, the teaching and even the death, burial, resurrection of, of Jesus. And, and the way we like to roll around here is just to go straight through books of the Bible from time to time. And, and the way we actually do it is book of the Bible, then a topical series and a book of the Bible. And when we go through books of the Bible, it's really good because it keeps me from jumping on my soapbox, the few things I really like to talk about. And it makes me go through things uh, that I don't talk about all the time, probably wouldn't otherwise talk about. And money is one of those. And so just so you know, that's not my favorite topic, but here we are and uh, it's next. And so we're going we're gonna, to going to preach it. And we go straight through books, and it forces us to say whatever Jesus says. And man, I'm telling you, chapter 16 is rough. I mean, this is, this is a tough one. Next uh, few weeks of, of Luke chapter 16 are going to be pretty rough. Next week, we're not going to be in Luke 16. So come on, bring your friends, and don't worry about it. But uh, the week after that, it's going to don't bring anybody. I'm just kidding. The week after, it's going to be good. And so uh, we, we go through it. We'll say whatever Jesus has to say, and with the frequency that he says what he says. And so we're talking about money again. Don't hate. He's the one who talks about it with this frequency. He talks about it more than heaven or hell. And so there's some reason he wants us to talk with frequency about money. And we need to hear it. And so look with me at, at Luke chapter 16. And start with me at verse 1. It says, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a, what's that word? A manager. 
There's the manager. So, as we get into this parable of Jesus, I said all throughout his teachings, he keeps talking about us as managers. And so, who are we to identify with right out of the gate here? The the manager. We're one of those churches where you can talk. And so, go ahead. Uh, We're to identify with the manager, the one who handles someone else's money. Now, here's the thing. This is a strange, strange parable. Oh, you will see. It is very confusing. And uh, in fact, the most confusing of all the parables that Jesus shares. And I've actually had people say, you're preaching through Luke 16? I'm praying for you. And so here we are. You, give, you know, they give me the hug like I'm going off to battle or something. Oh, gosh. Uh, here's what we do know. We do know that Jesus is talking about money. The first 13 verses are where we're focusing today, but then it finishes with verse 14. If you look ahead, and here's what it reads. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things that Jesus said in the first 13 verses, and they ridiculed him. And so they loved money, and so when he talks about it, they are angry. 1 Timothy chapter 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. These guys loved money. And so what Jesus says here, for those who love money, might bother them a little bit. Your money, or should we say his money, in your hands is connected to your heart. I say it all the time. I'll say it one more time. Remember the chain wallets of 1990-something? got a chain to your heart. Your, your wallet is chained to your heart. It's a reflection of your heart, how you handle your, your money. If we were to pull up our bank accounts online, I was going to say your checkbook, but who actually does that anymore? Uh, if you were to pull out your bank account online, you'd see all kinds of transactions. And if you were to trace those, those transactions, it would say a lot about your heart. Do you love money or do you love people and Jesus, your money and your heart are, are deeply connected. And so Jesus keeps addressing it. He's really concerned with your heart. And so he wants to talk about it. You know that, statistically speaking, vast majority of marriages that end in divorce end in divorce largely because of money, because of conflict over how each are handling the money that they have. You know that a leading cause of anxiety and stress is money? A leading cause of relational conflict is money? And so Jesus wants to free you up from being so consumed with money. He wants to take that weight off of your shoulders and give you a godly perspective on money, a kingdom perspective on money. We're we're looking at the kingdom of God, this 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 thing that Jesus is talking about off and on throughout this book of Luke, but really with great, great focus over the past few chapters, the rule and the reign of Jesus among us. We're calling it the upside-down kingdom because it's just so different. It's so countercultural from the rest of the world. And his kingdom economy is upside-down as well. His, His kingdom economy, how we're to deal with money is different as well. And so let's press in. Let's just read it. All right? You'll see what I'm talking about. Here we go. Let's read it. Luke chapter 16. It says, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, 
for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And then the master commended him, the dishonest manager. For his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of righteous, unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful with very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful, In the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters either. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right. Confused? We're going to walk away with a few principles, a few applications, but first let's try to just walk through this verse by verse and, and make some sense of it if we, we can. Verse 1, there's a rich man who had a guy who managed his money. And it was brought to the rich man's attention that his manager was mishandling his money. That just gives you an idea of just how rich he is, right? If somebody's messing with my money, I'm going to know, wait, where'd my $50 go? That's all I got. <laughs> He's so rich he doesn't even notice when his money's getting messed up, right? And so he has some guy bring it to his attention. And we don't know how he's messing with his money. Could have been embezzling. He could have been not investing it very well. He could have just been spending it on dumb stuff for the company. We don't really know. It doesn't really matter. Verse 2, the rich man calls his manager, and in his very best, President Donald Trump, oh Lord help us, voice, he says, you're fired, right? He says, you're out of here. But not, here's a box, and here's a security guard. Walk him to the parking lot. You're fired. He says, close up your accounts, essentially, and then you're out of here. And so the manager has a little bit of time before he's out of the office. And so verse 3, the manager says, oh, man, I'm in trouble. What am I going to do? I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm too ashamed to beg. This guy, right? (laughs) He's too white-collar to pick up a shovel. Can't do that. Might break a nail. He's too prideful to be a beggar. He's in trouble. He's broke. And before long, he's going to be homeless. So he says, I'll devise a plan. And verse 4 gives us a little bit of the plan. He says, so that I won't be homeless, and so that I have somebody's home to stay in when this is all said and done, here's what I'll do. And he meets with some of the people who owe some money to his boss, his master's debtors. And he connects with these guys and and he gets them together. And the first guy, what does he do? He says, hey, how much do you owe my master? And the guy says, 100 measures of oil. We're not talking like 100 little scoops of oil. 100 measures of oil was about the amount of oil that you could squeeze out of 150 olive trees. 
That's two years of salary for the average worker. And so what does the laid-off manager do? He says, I like you, man. You're my boy. Make that 50, right? And so he says, 100, make that 50. You just write that check, $50, right? 50 measures of oil. That's one year's salary gone. That's huge. That's, that's amazing. I got you, bro. You just remember where that came from, right? That's what he's saying. You just don't forget me. And then verse 7 does it again, second guy. He says, how much do you owe my master? And he says, I, I, I owe him 100 measures of wheat. Now, 100 measures of, of wheat would have required 100 acres of land to grow. So that's 10 years worth of salary for the average worker. And what does the laid-off manager say to him? He says, you're my boy. Make that 80. I got you. You just remember that. You remember where that came from. It's not 50% off. It's not a great little deal, you know, at, at Savers. 50% off instead of $6. It's $3. This is huge. 10 years, a decade worth of salary. And he says, make that 80. So that's two years worth of salary saved. Just remember where that came from, right? You see what the manager is up to here? He's just setting himself up so he's got somewhere to live. He's got somebody to eat off of. So when he's homeless and hungry, he can knock on one of those guys' door and say, can I stay with you? <laughs> he's a smart guy, right? Remember that I kept you out of jail because you couldn't pay the debt. You just remember. Just remember me. I got you, man. Remember that. It's shady, right? It's shady. Now here's where it gets confusing because in verse 8, Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Say what? Because as as I understand the Bible and the parables of Jesus, time and time again as we read through it, the, the master usually represents God and the manager usually represents who? Us, right? You and me. And how we deal with God's money. But the master just commended the dishonest, the shady manager. Now, does that sound like something Jesus would do? Well done. Go, therefore, my children, and be shady. Be con artists. I'm commissioning you, right? No. Think about it this way. Think about you're playing a sport, and and one of your opponents just made this ridiculous play, and you're like, when I was a kid, we used to play backyard baseball all the time. My house, and we had a, a lot beside our house. And uh, we would play backyard baseball over there. So I guess it was technically side yard baseball. And, and we tried everything in our games. And kids, you could be shady. You didn't have an umpire, so you could do whatever you wanted to do. And, and so we, I remember we did this classic play, and I know you've heard of it before. And, and, and what we did is, you know, the, we, we, we had a guy on first, and so we were on the field, and we just called a huddle on the pitcher's mound. You know where it's going? And everybody huddles on the pitcher's mound, and, and we... Give, the pitcher gives the ball to the first baseman, and then the first baseman goes back and stands on the base, and then the pitcher gets all up in his wind-up, but he doesn't actually have the ball. And so the guy on first leads off a little bit, and the first baseman just goes, you're out. <laughs> and it ended the game. It was amazing. I think we got that off of a movie or something. It was just awesome. And we remembered that forever as kids. We're always, remember that? Remember that play? And even the guys who lost were like, you bested us, but that was, that was, that was pretty good, right? It was brilliant. That's what is happening here, I believe. He's saying, you got me. (laughs) Brilliant. 
He commends the shady manager. Now, if that wasn't confusing enough, Jesus commending somebody doing something dishonest, it gets more confusing. Jesus goes on. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so he compares the sons of this world and the sons of light. Or worldly people and godly people. And he is saying that worldly people often do a better job than God's people in the point of the parable. And it's not okay. It's not how it should be. And so this is where we really have to figure, okay, so what is the point of the parable? That they're doing better than us in. What is it? At what? So read verse 9. He says, and I tell you, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. What? It just keeps getting more confusing here. Uh, oh man, I was, I was studying this for the past like three weeks and, and read all these commentaries and they're like, they, they would almost always open up with, we don't really know, but here's a stat. And so here we go. Uh, verse nine, I tell you, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth. At first it sounds like he's saying, so go likewise and make friends by means of dirty money. Go buy friends. What? Here's my stab. Unrighteous wealth as opposed to righteous wealth, as opposed to eternal wealth that waits us in heaven, what it refers to later as true riches. Everything else, it's not bad. It's just not righteous. It's just not eternal. It's not going to go with us when we die. It's not what he has ultimately for us lined up. You think you're doing all right now? You have no clue. He is going to hook you up. Whatever you have going on right now, no matter how bad it is, no matter how painful it is, eternity that awaits you, first the wealth is Jesus. You get to be with Jesus forever. And that's all you need. But even beyond that, it's going to blow your mind. My kids, honestly, my boys struggle with, with this idea of heaven. They're like, Dad, we don't like singing all that much. <laughs> I'm like, you think it's just going to be choir practice all, all eternity long? And like sitting on clouds in our pampers diapers and strumming hard. I mean, I think that's what they actually think. And I'm trying so hard. No, like, it's different. It's going to be amazing. New heaven, new earth forever. It's going to be incredible. The wealth that awaits you and the wealth of the grace and the freedom that God grants you, that's righteous eternal wealth unrighteous wealth what we have on this earth not necessarily shady money just what we have on this earth won't even compare so it sounds like he's saying make friends with dirty money shady money that's not exactly what he's saying earthly wealth is not evil in and of itself what is evil if you remember so we open up with first timothy chapter 6 verse 10 the love of money the love of unrighteous or earthly wealth leads to all kinds of evil so wealth is not evil but your heart with regards to how it responds and interacts with your wealth that's what is evil and so jesus says like the shady manager use your unrighteous wealth use your earthly wealth for what to make friends for yourself. Well, that doesn't even make it any better. It just keeps getting harder. What, use your money to buy friends? What are we talking about, sorority? <laughs> no, don't buy friends. Here's what he's saying. The difference is what kind of friends do we make? It says ones who 
receive us into eternal dwellings. Not into earthly dwellings like the dishonest manager. Buy friends for yourself who will hook you up later and let you sleep at their place and crash their, their place and eat with them. No. Use your money to secure for yourself friends for all eternity. Use your money to secure other people who will be in heaven when you die waiting for you. And when you enter into your eternal dwelling, they're there saying, thank you. I love you, man. I'm here because you invested in the kingdom of God. Because you did something with your money that helped me to be here. That's what we're to do. That's what it means to secure for yourself friends by means of unrighteous wealth who will be there for you and receive you into the eternal, eternal dwelling. Use your money in such a way where you're making friends who will be waiting for you in heaven. Use your money to serve people so that they will gain a place in heaven, so that they will have eternity with Jesus in the kingdom of God, so that they're there excitedly waiting for you. Use your money to help other people get into the the kingdom. Make those kinds of people, those kinds of friends for yourself with your money. I'll say it again. If we were to pull up each of our online bank ledgers and we were to trace the transactions, what would the money trail say? Do we love money or do we love people and Jesus? Do we use our money for these things? The master will commend you, Jesus will commend you if you use your money to secure eternal friends. Not to buy friendships, that's not what we're talking about. That you will help people find their way to heaven by using your money to invest in kingdom projects, kingdom operations, so that people can know Jesus and be with him for all eternity. We've been looking at Jesus' focus on the kingdom of God for the past few weeks together within our greater series on the book of Luke, Life Under the Rule and Reign of Jesus. We've also been saying it's, 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 it's kind of like this. It's what life looks like when Jesus gets his way. That's the kingdom of God. And listen, when Jesus gets his way with our wallets, we'll be using our money on people to help them become eternal citizens of the kingdom of God. Listen, the upside down kingdom, a kingdom economy. You know what what happens when you're turned upside down? Hopefully this never happened to you, but if you imagine a bully taking a little kid and flipping him upside down and shaking him by his legs, what happens with everything in its pocket? It falls out. In the kingdom of God, your money comes out. You become generous. In the upside down kingdom, you have upside down pockets. In other words, the gravitational natural pull for a citizen of the kingdom of God is for money coming out, not money coming in and just hoarding it all. It requires for the citizen of the kingdom of God more effort to to keep it in than for it to just naturally, gravitationally come out. Is that true of your heart? 
that your gravitational pull is just open hands. I just want to, to give. I just want to meet needs. I want to do whatever it takes. I want to sacrifice whatever I can in order for more and more and more and more people to know Jesus. Seek first the what? The kingdom of God. Not seek first a retirement account. Not seek first getting your kids into that awesome school. Not seek first saving up for that college. Not seek first getting that car you always wanted. Not seek first getting that house in the suburbs and get out of this crazy city. Seek first the the kingdom of, of God. I had one lady uh, within our church family who she, all she wanted to do was just give. I had to fight her to, to save. I'm like, this is, maybe I shouldn't tell her this, but you should probably just save a little bit. You've got to say something. Right? She's like, I'm always running out of money. I'm like, what are you doing with your money? And we went, I helped her walk through some stuff. She's just buying stuff for everybody. She's like, needs, I'll meet every need. Every need. She didn't have the money. Buying gifts, grocery shopping for other people, scholarshiping our teens to, to, to camps and get out of the city and get in the woods and learn about Jesus. The gravitational pull of her heart was, I just got to give. I just, I'm not bringing this stuff with me. I just got to give. It was awesome. But you know what? That's the rare exception. Even among Christians. And that's why Jesus says, people of the world are doing a lot better than the citizens of light. Children of light, they're, they're, at, they're, they're out giving and doing it. We're, we're, we should be leading the charge here. A lady didn't have hardly any money, but she loved to give. Now, let me just be clear. Remember, Jesus is not after your money. He's after your heart. Remember the, the story of the widow's might? We've, we've talked through that a few times here. This, this poor, broke-as-a-joke widow and she's in the temple treasury, and she put some money in the treasury, and nobody noticed. So crazy that, that it says just before that, these people were giving large sums of money, which literally means, if you look at the original language, literally large sums actually meant many coins. So think about dropping coins in a piggy bank. Just ching, 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 ching. It sounds like Vegas, baby, right? And then she comes over, ding, ding. Nobody would even care. After all that noise and racket, Jesus does. Jesus is sitting there watching people, people watching. You ever done that at the airport? He gets up, he goes, God, he calls his disciples. He says, this woman gave more than anybody else. Did she? Proportionately, she did. He was impressed with her heart. that She had such faith that God would provide. She gave everything that she had. That means if she had any kids, she's not feeding those kids tomorrow unless God provides. It's her heart to to give, and Jesus is after the heart. Think about this. Who gives more? A little math for you. Sunday morning math. Nobody nobody wants that. Young dude working at Dunkin' Donuts, making maybe 20K a year, gives away $4,000 in the year. A wealthy business tycoon, Gives away $50,000 in a year. And he's racking up a million dollars annually. Well, 50 k is a whole lot more than 4 k But it's 5% compared to, I want to ask you to do the math, 20%. I did it for you. I may or may not have used a calculator. 
It's not the dollar amount. God doesn't need your money. Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches this amazing sermon and as he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he preaches, he says, our God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. It's not much. But he wants your heart. So as we talk about, look at your bank account, we're not, what does it say about your heart? Not so much looking at the ledger on the right side, we're looking at the interaction on the, the left side. Who's it going to? And with what frequency? What's happening with your, your money? Things like, we've already said groceries for somebody in need. We've got people who do that for others in, in this place. It's amazing, I love it. Or, or, or maybe you're using your money to, to fund a creative ministry to your neighbors. We're going to do a block party. We're not going to pass a bucket around. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pay for the bouncy houses for the kids in the neighborhood. I'm going to take care of it all. I'm not going to put my name across the compliments of Josh Wyatt. No, I'm just going to do it and just creative ministry for my neighbors. Right? Or maybe give to missions overseas. Maybe yourself go overseas or maybe give to the ministry uh, of the church i'll say this to be clear the old testament standard was 10 percent in all actuality i think they gave more like 25 percent of what they brought in if you look at some of the other offerings that they gave but the old testament standard the mosaic law was 10 percent we're not bound to that law anymore so we're not going to stand up here and say give us your tithe <laughs> that's what 10 percent it was tithe but what we like to do, what my family does, is we just say, well, that's the standard, and that's, we're going to try to go above and beyond that because it's the, it's the era of grace. God has done so much for us. We just want to grow that every single year. And i got to say, church, you're doing well here. And so this is me preaching to the choir. I just want to make sure we're preaching this over and over and over again because Jesus is preaching it over and over and over again. You're doing really well here. We're about to have a family meeting when this is all done. Uh, for those of you who stay around after lunch and... We get a great report to deliver. And so, praise God, you're, you're, you're doing it. And people are experiencing the freedom that comes when you use your money to worship God and not your stuff or the feelings that lots of stuff gives you, the security that a big cushion gives you. you worship God. Our hearts should reflect a deep love for Jesus and people with our money. The hearts of the Pharisees, verse 14, showed that they were lovers of money. Now, as we round third base, let me just recap 1 through 13. A very difficult one to understand, but let me just say this. Parables have really one primary point. Not to be overly sliced and overly applied, and so let's not get too hung up on how difficult it is. You know, some people say, well, the vine is Israel and the, the root is pride and the leaves are the Pharisees and the axe is Rome and the, the, the bark is sackcloth. Repent, and just, just slice it like crazy. Parables just have one point, generally speaking. And so let me just do my best to, to recap this difficult parable. You ready for it? Here's my recap. If you want to write it down, if you're a note guy or gal. You have temporary management of someone else's resources, so be shrewd for the kingdom. You have temporary management of someone else's resources, so be shrewd for the kingdom. Three parts. Temporary management. You're a steward. You're, you're a manager. And you will be held 
accountable to your boss, to the Lord, who's a good and perfect and loving and gracious boss, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. But you have temporary management. One thing we, we often will seek to keep hidden, probably more than anything else, is our money, right? You don't want people to know how much you got in the bank. Like for some reason, we're way private about that. But know that you're, you're not hiding them from God. Where can I go from your presence, O Lord? He says. Can't hide from God. You're accountable before the Lord. You work for Him. Your management is temporary because stuff that is in your hands is all temporary stuff, right? We know this, right? I think we all know this. The stuff that you have, it's just temporary. It's not going to be in your hands forever for probably a couple reasons. One, because it's all going to get dated and obsolete. Hopefully you're not wearing that same sweater you wore back in the 80s, right? It's going to be obsolete. And, and technology, right? A faster rate than ever, right? You might have the, the iPod problem. Oh, gosh, you're kidding me. I'm so mad at Apple over and over and over again. I got my very first iPod. I remember that. It was a Christmas gift somebody gave me. I got this thing. It was the iPod photo. It had photos on it, y'all. I mean, it was amazing. Right? It wasn't black and white anymore. It was color. And I had that thing. I was like, oh, so cool. Had it for two weeks. And guess what they did? Our boy Steve Jobs stands up. It's a new innovation. iPod with video on it. Dang. <laughs> a photo. I had the, the latest and greatest for two weeks. It's just, that's the story of life, right? A few years later, who even cares about it? Who has an iPod anymore, right? It's on your phone. You do everything from your phone. It gets dated. It gets obsolete. You're not going to want it in 10 years. We have these offices at, at uh, this, this complex, and it's an apartment complex as well, and I'm blown away every Wednesday, trash day. When I walk, and how many TVs are piled? Like, are we going through TVs this fast? There's like 20 TVs on the curb every single week. If you need a TV, just come tell me. I'll, I'll help you out. Another reason stuff is in our hands temporarily is because, you know what? When we die, it's not going with us. Or it's going to somebody else. Or my, my buddy recently posted a little video on Instagram. He was at his grandfather's house. His grandfather's alive and healthy, but he was helping grandpa clean out the house. This bunch of junk. And he was just throwing it out the window into this big dumpster from the second floor. Had videos. There goes grandpa's 1960 such and such. Isn't that a picture? Just going to be gone. My grandmother is awesome. And she, I'm telling you, she prays for this church like nobody prays for this church. And uh, she's our number one prayer warrior. She's getting up there in age and it's funny, every time I try to take a picture with her, she goes, you want to take a picture with me because you think it might be the last time you ever see me again. <laughs> Grandma, stop. So I don't have any pictures with her from like the last decade. <laughs> Another thing she's been doing for 20 years, though, is she's been giving her stuff away because she's like, I'm getting old. I'm every, it's been two decades now. And she's still just giving stuff away. What if we had that perspective, huh? It's just temporary. This, I don't it's not my car. You need to borrow it. I can help you move. It's not mine. 
Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, you read about this, this first church and its infancy, and, and they had everything in common. They didn't act like anything was their own. It was God's first, and, and so it's yours. I mean, let's just, we're, we're in this thing together. What if we all had this perspective? Just a manager. It's not my own. Which leads to the next piece of this three-part statement. Temporary management of somebody else's resources. Remember, it's God's. Everything that you have is God's. I worked hard for it. I bet you did. Who gave you the ability to think the way you think? Who gave you the muscle to lift the way you lift? Or the management skills to manage the way you manage? Or have you ever thought about the fact that you live in a country that pays well for whatever it is that you're getting paid for? Computer programmers, they're not going to care in Madagascar. It doesn't matter. You worked hard, but God's in it. He's given you what you have. Somebody else's resources, ultimately. My, my wife, she has kind of this knack for interior decorating. And so a, a few times now, people have been in our place and liked the way she did things. And so they'll say, hey, would you, would you help me with this room? Or, you know what? You just, you just here's a thousand dollars. Just make my living room look sweet. Right? Or here's, here's 200 bucks. Just, you just pimp out my bedroom. Just make it look awesome. Right? And so my wife is like, I love this. I can spend somebody else's money. That's fun for me. So she's done that several times now. That's what you're doing. It's somebody else's money. It's God's stuff that you get to give out and share and, 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 and build the kingdom of God with. Temporary management of somebody else's money. Here's the last one. So be shrewd for the kingdom. You know what it means to be shrewd, right? To be smart, to use your time well, to be acute in your dealing. That describe how you are with regards to how you use your money for the kingdom of God? I'm really trying to be acute and focused and wise and really about the mission of seeking first the kingdom of God. I'm a hustler for the kingdom. That's what the dishonest manager was. He was hustling, wasn't he? Every day he hustling, right? Rick Ross, anybody? No, okay. Peter says in his letters, he says, for the days are evil. Every single day is out to distract you and pull you away from the thing that you're supposed to be all about. The writer of, of Hebrews says, as long as it is called today. In other words, today's going to be gone tomorrow. So as long as it's called a day, you better do something. Let's get busy here. The point is urgency. The point is be shrewd. He knew that time was ticking. He was going to be out of the office complex in his car. So he had to secure for himself somewhere to stay. And we have to secure for ourselves friends in heaven. Not that that's going to get us into heaven. We have to secure for ourselves people who are going to follow Jesus. And we've got to to use our resources for that purpose. It's more important than work. It's more important than anything. Seek first the kingdom of God. Let's be shrewd, wise, sharp. All about accomplishing the, the mission. If you're faithful and little, he says, Gonna give you management over more. 
you will be faithful with what God has given you. He grows your ability to reach more for the kingdom of God. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you're faithful, you're going to have a bigger bank account. That's not what we're talking about here. If you'll be faithful, he'll give you greater influence. Be faithful with what God has given you. And ultimately, where does this kind of heart come from? It's a heart that has been transformed by Jesus. A heart that has been changed by Jesus, whereas it says, he's your master, you're serving him, not money. And when you get what he has done for you, it changes everything, and you just want to live your life to honor him. That's why we see people all the time who go from, I was so about this, and it was like, I, when I met Jesus, it wasn't like he was just my, my little Sunday thing. He, he became everything. That's the kind of heart he's going after. Where we understand we are greatly in debt because of our sin. That we have sinned against the holy God. And the wages, the Bible says, of sin is death. But rather than holding you to that debt and saying, you owe me. I'm a, I'm a just God. We want a just God, don't we? Except when justice is applied to us. He says, rather than holding you to that debt that you owe me. He sends his son Jesus to live perfectly, undeserving of the wage. He doesn't go into debt. He doesn't have to die. But he dies willingly on the cross, paying our payment, saying, let me take that bill. So that if we trust in him and not try to pay it ourselves, we don't got the money, we don't have the capability to earn God's favor. We trust in what he has done. We can be made right with God. That's what we call the gospel. That's what we call the good news. And it is more good news. It's just better than you could possibly even imagine. The debt is greater than you'll ever imagine. You have sinned against an infinitely holy God and he has done something for you that's amazing. He sends his son to die for you to pay the debt. In just a minute, we're going to respond in singing and we're going to sing this song, Jesus paid it all. And so all to him I owe. We owe him everything. He's paid the ultimate debt for us. When your heart is changed by Jesus, you have this kind of perspective on money. Like It's not about that anyhow. It's not my life. That's not my goal. My goal is the mission of Jesus. It's the kingdom of God. That's what I'm, that's what I'm pursuing. So I'm praying for you that this will be a turning point in your life this morning. Where for some of you, today you give your life to Jesus. You receive the reality that he paid your debt for you. That you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to trust in you. I can never pay this back, but you did. And so I trust in you. Some of you today need to become a Christian and say yes to Jesus. The Bible says if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You, in the best way, in the true, pure intention of your heart, say, Jesus, I want you. I receive it. I've sinned. You are perfect. I trust in your death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to invite you to that. Some of you in here, you're a Christian. You've given your life to Jesus, but maybe you've been challenged a bit to, to get your heart straightened out a bit. You just need in the best way you know how. It's not muster up effort. I'm going to do it right this time. That doesn't work. What you have to do is you have to say, God, give me your heart for people, that I would see people and I'd see your, your mission before me and long for that, want to pursue that. And he'll give you the right heart. Broken and contrite heart, he does not despise. Some of you need to pray that way. Some of you need to pray. Give your life to Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that we have people in this room who are sons and daughters of light. 
But maybe for, for them, the reality is the people of the world are doing a little bit better than they are in terms of being shrewd and securing for themselves. Friends. And we be shrewd, but securing for ourselves. Not those kinds of friends. Friends for eternity. But we would be about the business of the kingdom expansion. God, shake us up a bit. Give us fresh hearts for what you want us to be about. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this place this morning that does not know Jesus, has never given their lives to Jesus, Lord, please, change their heart. Open their eyes so they might see what Jesus has done for them, paying this amazing, amazing price on the cross. May they see the love that you displayed for the Father and for us in dying. May they be so moved and love you because you first loved them. that's you, you call out to Jesus in this time of prayer. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved from that debt of eternal separation from God. Right now. Praise God for changing hearts and lives. If that was you, we'd ask you to communicate that to us. Let us know that you gave your life to Jesus. There's a spot on that card you could tell us. I trusted in Jesus for the first time today. Maybe you want to come tell one of the pastors in the back afterwards. We'd love to hear that. No greater decision. God, do your work among us as we respond accordingly. In giving and singing and fellowship and prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.